This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I'm Leah, experiencing existential ennui. I also have chronic depression. The two may or may not be related. And I'm Will, and I'm experiencing Cruci Pruchels. What the hell is a Cruci Pruchels? You're going to have to read the links to find out. I'll give you a hint. It's something in Scottish. Hello, indeed, and welcome to the show. As you may have guessed, this week we are talking about feelings. Some of you might remember back in episode 47, we had a little bit of a feature about feelings. There was an audio map where you could hear what different feelings were with a kind of mix of different emotions and how they mix together to make other feelings. A lot of them actually just sounded like yelling. Various blends between disgust and arousal. Actually, that is a lot of my feelings. As your husband, I don't know how to react to that. You're disgusting, but also sexy. That's what I was afraid of. So, (laughs) we've got some more feelings stories for you. Starting with a very similar story in the feelings place. Not about the map of emotions and their sounds, but a place of emotions in your head which is where most of my emotions are, come to think of it. So that's a good start. You know how in, in Western culture we typically talk about, you know, feeling things in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cultures who feel things in their kidneys instead. I've only felt one thing in my kidney and it was a stone and I didn't like it. I guess they're just like very aware of what's happening with their adrenal glands. I'm going to be honest, I read that in a novel. It may be apocryphal, but I like it. I've got a feeling it's not true. I've got a feeling you're spoiling my fun. I've got a feeling. Woohoo! Uh... <laughs> and where does the feeling of remorse on this my isn't behalf remorse, come in your it's head? It's exasperation. Okay, and where would you say that is? Um, I would assume that, much like all of our other emotions, it lives in a three centimeter area of my cortex as has been discovered by researchers at the IMT School for Advanced Studies. It does feel like kind of a small place to put all of emotion, three centimetres, in the back end of your brain. Like you'd expect feelings to, to take up more space? I know there's the brain's very complicated and it's doing all kinds of things, but feelings are a very brain-exclusive thing. The spine can handle a lot of balance and movement, Feelings are, um, I think they're actually quite simple compared to a lot of the other stuff that our brains are doing. Like, have you ever seen that thing where someone's like, oh, you say you can't do maths, but here is this huge equation. And if I throw a ball at you and you catch it, you have done that equation in your head without even knowing it. Hmm. And, you know, there's bits of it that are monitoring whether you're warm enough, whether your blood sugar is high enough, whether you've stubbed your toe or need a wee, and whether you're happy or not is... um, But I would have expected it to be more spread out, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it to take up more space. Hmm, That's fair. Because I think of the cortex, the back end of the brain, being kind of some of the instincts that you've mentioned. All of the understanding and words and like world experience and cognition, so far as I know, happens around the front. Definitely in the top layers. Yeah. But, you know, we've got these big eyeballs for seeing. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some computing given over to that. And our whole bodies are covered in nerves that are sensing all kinds of sensations. 
So it sort of makes sense that an emotion... We can fit that inside a walnut. Yeah, yeah. Or at least these are the findings. Our Professor Pietro Pietrini and a paper published in Nature Communications. I love the methodology that they use to find out where feelings are. Yeah, I mean, we should we should note that this is 15 volunteers who they put through the harrowing experience. Harrowing? Okay. The... It's, it's quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it's funny, right? I mean... Isn't that why this is a joke, is, if, is it's quite nice? I mean, the ending's very sad. Were put through the emotional ringer by watching 1994 American movie Forrest Gump. And then they got brain scan data from a further 15 participants through Open Science, a platform where scientists from different laboratories can share data so anyone can replicate their findings or use the data for novel experiments. Which is cool. It's real cool, real neat, real nifty. And it turns out if you lay the emotional experience of watching Forrest Gump who are rating their feelings on a scale of 0 to 100 for intensity, they can then try to see if that information would predict fMRI response of the open science group, and found that basically they can map between fear, surprise, disgust, anger, sadness, whatever emotion you're having and the intensity of it, to the fMRI activation data, which will light up in different colours to see what's shining where and how you can associate that with other information to figure out that, yep, it's this little golf ball-sized thing Tucked just behind the ear, I suppose. That's where your feelings are. In a walnut, just behind your ear. To be fair, that does correspond quite well with the colleague who once told me that he's not really capable of feeling more than one thing at a time, and that if he's hungry, it cancels out any other emotional response. <laughs> so it's not just he's not himself when he's hungry. <laughs> when he's hungry, he's not anything. <laughs> he's not anyone. The Snickers advert have got their work cut out for them with this guy. He can either be happy or hungry. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also like to note that this press release has got some fantastic jargon. Including a word they made up. Emotionotropy. Which is the word they propose as a principle for emotion coding. But we also have... To summarise, the right temporoparietal junction can topographically represent the variety of the affective states that we experience. Which is a mouthful. Lots of G's and Y's that you wouldn't otherwise... It's good for Scrabble, is science. Lots of ologies and imagies. Does Scrabble traditionally accept field-specific terms? No. I didn't think so. No, otherwise you could play low-sign, now-sign, hillabilification if you had enough tiles. You'd have to have quite a lot of quite tiles. Quite a lot of tiles. My work in bananagrams, though. Mm. Feeling of confusion and despair as someone flaps out something with seven Zs, six Xs, twelve Ys, and you just have to accept that's probably the name of a dinosaur. Yeah, I mean, I'd make them draw it. <laughs> if you can draw a dinosaur, it's real. If you can't, you're probably making it up. Yeah. If you can give me the general shape of the dinosaur and point out maybe some of its particular features, especially ones that have led to it being given the name it has, like... Styracosaurus. So named because he's spiky. Okay. The feeling of dinosaurs is activating in my brain. If we were to put this against me watching... The emotion of dinosaurs. Yeah, put this against me watching the <laughs> 1990 whenever film Jurassic Park, it'd probably light up, yeah. I don't think there were any Styracosaurus in that film. I don't think there were any Parasaurolophus, which is a shame because Parasaurolophus is my favourite dinosaur to say. Mm. I never grow out of my dinosaur face. Yeah. Or rather... I did, 
but it's still in there. <laughs> Somewhere the, behind the walnut. The information is still in there. Possibly on top of the walnut. That's a little pea of dinosaur. I think, I think knowledge might live on top of the walnut. <laughs> a cashew of dinosaur <laughs> tucked in the walnut beside your ear. <laughs> Feelings live here. Dinosaurs live there. Here is the place in my brain where I know that Stegosaurus was the best dinosaur. <laughs> Not feel. No. Yes. I'm certain of this. I look at a Stegosaur, I feel joy. Nothing else brings me that. The walnut is happy. <laughs> well, if you're not feeling happiness in your walnut... This one's going to be a bitch to edit, isn't oh, it? Oh, no, I'm just I'm not going to edit it. It's all gold. It's all gold. <laughs> well, if you're feeling happy in your walnut, maybe you can feel happy somewhere else as well. Because as much as the opening story is all about feelings in the brain... It's not just our brain that decides how we feel. Our gut microbiomes seem to have an effect or seem to be affected by no one's quite established the causal relationship yet. I think our feelings and well-being and mental health. I have problems with this one. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to summarise it before you set me off on the problems I have. I will do just that. This work from the University of Oxford has been authored by Dr. Katerina Johnson, who has found that both gut microbiome composition and diversity have been linked to differences in personality, including sociability and neuroticism. Also finds that people with large social networks tend to have a more diverse gut microbiome, which is associated with better gut health and general health, and people who had been formula-fed as children had a less diverse microbiome in adulthood. You can improve your gut microbiome with natural sources of probiotics, things like your sauerkrauts and kimchi, and prebiotic foods like fruits and nuts and stuff, but not as supplements. The supplements don't work, it actually has to be the food that makes you feel good. There's a quote from Katerina saying that this is the first study to find a link between sociability and microbiome diversity in humans and follows on from similar findings in primates, which have shown that social interactions can promote gut microbiome diversity. The results suggest the same may be true in humans. And then there's also another bit. Yes, so that all seems fairly sensible. You know, it's becoming pretty well established that Gut microbiome has a link to stuff in your brain. Fine. Makes sense that probiotics and prebiotics will improve your gut microbiome. Fine. In this press release, it mentions autism, which it describes as a condition characterised by impaired social behaviour. That's not a very thorough summary of the presentation of that. That's besides the point. And then it is mentioned that the study found numerous types of bacteria that had been associated with autism in previous research were also related to differences in sociability in the general population, which Dr. Johnson has suggested may support an idea that the gut microbiome might contribute to extreme behavioural traits, is the exact quote, which I'm not entirely comfortable with, and that investigating the potential effect bacteria may have on behavior may help inform the development of new therapies for autism and depression now therapies for depression fine go hog wild now i don't know how up to date people in general are on the way autism advocates view being autistic but my understanding as of this moment as someone who is friends with quite a few people who are autistic and are active advocates for themselves as autistic people, 
is that as autism is a condition which affects the way you relate to literally every single thing you interact with in the world, if you treat the autism or cure the autism or just in some way remove or reduce the autism in the person, what you have left is a different person. Which is why autism advocacy generally rejects the sort of person-first language of person with autism and prefers to say autistic person or to describe themselves as autistic because it is seen as a hardwired thing that is completely inseparable from the person who has that wiring. If you try and make the autism better, and again, that's a very relative term, if you're trying to make an autistic person more like an allistic person, a person who does not have autism, then you are making them less themselves. Which, since groups which push for autism awareness through things which focus on, like, the families of autistic people and, oh, how terrible it is to have this this autistic child who does not interact with me, as opposed to the sort of autism advocacy which focuses on acceptance over awareness, on we just are this way and actually it shouldn't be an issue for the rest of the world to acknowledge that sometimes if someone turns to you and goes, actually, please, can you lower your voice? The fact that you're shouting right now is extremely distressing for me. They should go, oh, okay, sorry, and quiet down. Or, you know, wanting to wear sunglasses indoors or wanting to sit under the table at school rather than sit at the table at school because it's just less sensorily overstimulating. These are all things that are quite common in a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders and things that are characterised as typically as learning disabilities. So dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, autism, there's a lot of overlap. They are probably related. They are probably all zones of the same kind of brain difference. And curing it is a very different thing to making the world livable for people who interact with the world in this way. It's a matter of inclusion and acceptance rather than fitting you to the world. Yes, yes, exactly. And if you're interested in looking into this anymore, I recommend looking up, I think it's ASAN, the Autism Self-Advocacy Network, and the Social Model of Disability, because ASAN do all this kind of stuff in opposition to the kind of autism charities that just want to raise awareness and money of these poor children who don't speak, as opposed to trying to improve accessibility, trying to improve understanding of what the situation is so that they can interact respectfully with people. And yeah, the social model of disability is particularly relevant in the case of basically the neurodiversity discussion. We'll have links to those in the episode description that go out with this episode. And um, if you know more about those things than I do, and I've got things wrong, feel free to mention it, because this is my understanding, which is based off personal interest and research rather than an academic basis. And you can find us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Well, in our next story, we've moved from the brain to the gut. We're heading back up now to the face with a story from Ohio State University, who reckon that 
As much as you might think that you understand how someone is feeling by looking deep into their eyes or you know, just getting a feel from how they're emoting at you. The robots that we've tried to train to do it can't figure it out. There's a quote about two paragraphs down from one of the authors, Alex Martinez, who is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Ohio State University. The question we really asked is, can we truly detect emotion from facial articulations? And the basic conclusion is, no, you can't. As Martinez's work has focused on building computer algorithms that analyse facial expressions, I would suggest that the we in that sentence is people who are trying to teach robots to recognise facial expressions. Mm -hmm. They do go on to talk about, because this specific work was with a view to applying it for customer service reasons, so put a little facial recognition guy on the top of the self-service till and see if you have a happy face as you're coming through or if you look very grumpy. And by that, try and work out how your shopping experience was. But the robot hasn't got any context, has it? Mm. If I, a person operating a till, have the context of this person came in frowning and they're leaving frowning, it's probably not anything we've done that's made their day bad. But if you've heard a slip, a crash and yelling, this chance is... There's, yeah, something has happened while they've been in store. Yeah. Another quote from Martinez is, Some claim they can detect whether someone is guilty of a crime or not, whether a student is paying attention in class or whether a customer is satisfied after a purchase. What our research showed is that those claims are complete baloney. There is no way you can determine these things, and worse, it can be dangerous. Which I think would be something that it might be worth asking Alex Lethbridge about, because his work has done a bunch of stuff about that kind of computer learning with a particular focus on using big data to identify potential criminals and how that tends to identify, interestingly, brown people. Mm. It's uh, easy enough to just not have computers do that kind of work when you could actually maybe speak to the human beings whose emotions you're trying to analyse and go, can you tell me how you're feeling? And sure, they might lie. Many of us do all the time. Sometimes it's just easier to not have the conversation of work of, oh, hey, how's it going? sick to the back teeth of this and of you and of the coffee and everything here and you just kind of say yes right but based on this particular paper we are probably not going to be living that fully automated wally life just yet and there's a distinct chance that all of the tv show lie to me is also made up although honestly if i had a choice between having a robot read my emotions at the till and not i would go for not because Wow, guys. Surveillance. Surveillance? All the time surveillance. If you don't have a sticker on your webcam, consider that. Oh, neither of us have stickers on our webcam. They can see us podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've done the brain, we've done the gut, we've done the face. Here's a quick story that links all three of those together in eating, in the feelings of eating, and also the social media attitudes of eating. This one happens to come from Aston University in Birmingham. Ah, something from your alma mater. And they have concluded that if you think your friends and relations on social media are eating lots of fruits and vegetables, you also will eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Because we're an intensely social species, I guess. The walnut is hungry. The walnut wants to be happy. The walnut sees the carrot. The walnut wants the carrot. The walnut is made happy by doing what it thinks everyone else is doing? I'm not sure this analogy is working. <laughs> the walnut is a simple creature. <laughs> The walnut is not a creature, the walnut is a region of the brain. Close enough. Anyway, point is... We're very into mimicry and mirroring, and if we see people having 
their five a day through social media, we are statistically more likely to buy fruit and veg. Or so this particular investigation has found. And apparently it goes both ways. If you think friends and family are more accepting of junk food, if their Instagram feed maybe is full of donuts, as mine is, <laughs> you're more likely to go for a little bit of fast food at lunchtime. That is a point, actually. The trend in monster shakes there was a couple of years ago of having like a brownie milkshake topped with a carton of ice cream and a donut and three Twixes stuck in the side. Honestly, just looking at those made me feel kind of queasy. That's It's just too much. But it didn't make you dive headfirst into the pick and mix. No, it didn't. But then I have always been quite contrary. <laughs> I mean, you're laughing, but you are laughing in a way that makes me feel like you're going, yeah. <laughs> As someone who's recently admitted that you find almost all vegetables more appealing and more easy to eat through the process of currying. Now, be fair, I do that at home in my own kitchen with my own spices. I'm not buying sagaloo from a man on the corner every week. Apart from the lunch market. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, that's made fresh by that man in his little cart. <laughs> on the corner. So... When I take my small tub of lentils from him, <laughs> my small tub of spicy lentils, <laughs> it's still not the same as eating it out of a ready meal, is it? Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is about the nudge theory, that you can steer behaviours with simple suggestions. Hmm. The point is I am still eating the vegetable. The point is also the vegetables, yes. The point is I am eating the vegetable. <laughs> like, yes, the vegetable might be drowned in butter and coconut, but I am eating the vegetable. There's healthy stuff in there, I'm sure there's healthy stuff in there. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I don't, like, care about my calorific intake as such. But I do care about eating a vegetable, and sometimes the only way to make the vegetable bearable is to make it spicy. And I'm not going to apologise. <laughs> well, if you won't apologise for spiciness... And I never will! You're probably not going to be seeking forgiveness for spiciness either. How about revenge spiciness? No, I, th I think it's much better to uh, ease people into spiciness. No spicy spite. Yeah, I'm, I won't spicy out of spite. I will spicy out of love. <laughs> it's for your health. It is. It's good for you. It releases the dolphins in the walnut. If anyone out there can make us one of those like 80s vaporwave images of some neon dolphins over a walnut with a blue triangle and some like pink strata lines behind that, I would love so much to see it. Please do send that to us. Ideally, <laughs> also maybe like try and get it on a t shirt or something. <laughs> dolphins in the walnut. Yeah, That's it our releases. That's first piece of Eureka Nerd merch. It releases dolphins in the walnut. <laughs> Email. EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com if you need our clothing sizes to get that on a t-shirt. should probably explain the, the story at this point now. Um, from Ohio State University, perhaps one of the most complex emotions, I guess, would be revenge. Like, it's a mix of several no, of emotions. Revenge is definitely an act rather than an emotion. Desire for revenge, I guess you could call an emotion. But really, I mean, it's just it's just a flavour of anger, isn't it? It's a complex experience, for sure. When it comes to the 
portrayal of revenge that we see through TV, films, media, apparently, as a species, we quite like it. But we do feel strongly that it should be proportional. Mm. So more the um, Rambo first blood kind of vengeance, where like people get a whooping but only one person gets killed, rather than the Rambo 4 style of vengeance in which someone makes a mistake and now the entirety of, I guess, northern Cambodia has to die. I watched five minutes of a Rambo film once. Sylvester Stallone was shooting people from a helicopter. Mm-hmm. In the wide shots, the helicopter was pristine. In the close shots, it apparently had a cracked windscreen. I didn't watch any more of it. I wish I could tell you which Rambo that was likely to be. I know. I don't care either way. According to Matthew Grizzard, who is the lead author of the study and assistant professor of communication at Ohio State University, we like stories in which the wrongdoers are punished, and when they get more punishment than they deserve, we find it fun. But people appreciate stories about forgiveness the most, even if they don't find quite as, well, fun. So, the study had 184 college students read short narratives that they were told were possible television episode plots. They all featured someone being wronged, for example, somebody stealing $50 from their co-worker, and then a forgiveness ending where the victim bought coffee for the thief, the equitable retribution scenario where the victim stole something worth $50 from the thief, and the third version where the victim stole their money back and downloaded porn onto the thief's work computer. Which, yeah, I'd call that an overreaction. Like, I will... I'm not going to get them fired for something else, rather. I'll report <laughs> I'll report them to HR. So you're going be for like, that just reaction. Pretty sure he's nicked 50 quid off me. But I'm not going to be like, so I'm going to put some bits on his computer. So yes, Grizzard does say that people have this gut level of response as to how they think people should be punished for wrongdoing. When a narrative delivers what they expect, they often respond more quickly. This, I feel, is a little bit contrary to most of my experience in Asian cinema where a lot of the crime, thriller, gangster flicks are someone makes a mistake, like including one film I saw, a Korean film in which someone takes their mob boss's girlfriend out on like, not even a date, but has an okay evening with her and she develops like an emotion and now everybody has to die. Several hundred people get cut up in that film. Because someone had a feeling once. And now everyone has to die. John Wick, as a different franchise example. I know you've mentioned that that's kind of inspired by that genre. Mm. I mean, to be fair, John Wick is mostly trying to get to the person who wronged him. Yeah. And most of the people who die were sort of in his way. Which is a different way of slighting somebody, isn't it? If you go, do you know where Alfie Allen is so that I can kill him? Is it Alfie Allen? It's Alfie Allen, Yeah. yeah. So that I can kill him. And you go, um, I don't think I can tell you that. Then I feel like he's kind of justified for killing you. (laughs) If Alfie Allen killed his dog. No Alfie Allen allies allowed. Basically. We should watch that film again. I haven't watched it once. You just gave me a really detailed summary of it once. The detailed summary of someone made a mistake. And now everyone has to die. Yeah, but Because that's the plot of the film. You told me, like, the four major steps of John Wick has retired and has a dog. 
Alfie Allen murders the dog and steals his car. Everyone has to die. Okay, so far I've described the opening 10 minutes of the film. Yeah, and, and then the rest of it is everyone has to die. The next three films is everyone has to die. <laughs> Same plot. Yeah, but there's like a different precipitating event every time, right? Nope. No? Same plot. We're still trying to kill Alfie Allen? I oh, thought no, he, he was already dead. No, he he's dead by the end of the first film, but not everyone is dead yet. <laughs> everyone has to die. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, so it's it's been proven that that's fun. So what are we what are we complaining about? Okay, so more Kill Bill, less John Wick in your revenge seems to be where people are. I guess I mean Kill Bill's also incredibly gory. Um, um, yes, a lot of people die. Okay, less John Wick, more Roadhouse. Yeah, that feels appropriate. Not so many people get horribly murdered. One guy does get his throat ripped out, but they killed Sam Elliott, so it's fine. If you have any revenge fantasies that you think is safer to explore in fiction, please do that and then tell us about, I don't know, your opinions of the John Wick franchise through the email address eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. If we've spoiled things for you, sorry about that, but we can argue about spoiler culture and how these films have been out for like five years and Roadhouse is older than I am, so no spoiler permissions there at all. But we can have this internet fight on Twitter as well, at Eureka Nerdcast. If you want to help us buy tickets to John Wick 4, which obviously will oblige me to at least watch the first one, I guess. No, you're caught up. I just told you. Okay, never mind then. Do donate to our Kofi. That also helps us to offset the costs of hosting and production. And, you know, it's just it's just nice if people are making things for you to listen to and hopefully making you laugh i felt like i've been funny today yeah it's just nice you can find more people informing you and making funny things that you can listen to and enjoy through the stimulus network at stimulus.network but until next time we'll leave you with these two quick stories that will possibly elicit some tickle in your walnut the shocker that kids who have been diagnosed with adhd might not take their medication regularly my favorite part of this is uh you know they've done they've done lots of maths they've worked out that children diagnosed with ADHD may be without their medication 40% of the time. Me, as an adult with probably ADHD, who has medication for depression, who takes it about 60% of the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. That's just how it is. How do you build a habit? I don't, I don't know. It's not in the walnut. Uh-huh. Did you know that inequality is bad for society, but economic prosperity is good in a pretty big cross-national study turns out that things going well is good and things going bad is bad who'd have thought apparently the people at otto von goerke universistat magdeburg but i'm glad they did the numbers you know yeah you want to go watch john wick <laughs> no. okay well thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you again soon but until next time goodbye goodbye So more the um, Rambo First Blood kind of vengeance, where like people get a whooping but only one person gets killed, rather than the 
If you don't reference another Rambo film, you've done this wrong. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. <laughs>